Just a brief word of prayer. Father, as we come into the Scriptures, we ask for illumination by your Holy Spirit in our hearts to overcome the inclinations of our minds to not submit to your authority. And we ask that you would then, um, through your grace, make clear your word, your gospel, your great truths to our hearts that we may believe. For we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Christ's name, amen. Now last week um, we finished the uh, cross of Christ and the death of Christ and we reviewed the atonement. And do you remember that each one of these events we have linked to some basic ideas? And the diagrams in the notes, you remember at the birth, there was that diagram of you coming, two people coming to the uh, announcement of the virgin birth, and one accepts and one rejects. And the one who accepts has a worldview that's biblical, God, man, and nature. So there's no problem. The virgin birth fits that worldview. But the person who comes with a sort of continuity of being evolutionary type worldview is going to have a problem with the virgin birth. Um, then when we dealt with the, with the life of Christ, we said that people come to the gospel narratives with one, a world, one of two worldviews. One either prepared that, to see that God does reveal himself, the, the biblical God reveals himself, and therefore it's not strange that the things that are reported in the gospel narratives in fact happened. On the other hand, we have the skeptics who argue that, on the basis of their worldview, the reports, the reported events in the gospel, uh, the gospel narratives could never have happened. And so, therefore, they must be spin doctors of the early church that uh, manufactured these stories about Jesus. Now, the third thing, we came to the death of Christ. And what do we say about that? We said, well fundamental to understanding the cross of Christ is that we have a biblical view of justice, of holiness, of what God is like. And if that isn't there, then the cross of Christ doesn't have substantial meaning. I mean, you know, I mean, it's the death of a martyr, it's a, you know, he died for his cause, he did something else, but whatever it is, he didn't die for my sins. Well, last week I played a section that was kind of poor through the PA system, uh, of a debate that was held in Orange uh, College, community college, I believe, Orange College, somewhere in, in the LA area, uh, with three leading spokesmen, one for Christianity, one for Islam, and one for Judaism. And um, you remember that the Islamic expert argued that the idea of a man becoming God, such as reported in the birth of Christ, hypostatic union, um, that is, was just common in the pagan world, and, you know, that's just part of the stories. Um, and, of course, we pointed out that it's, the gospel story is not a man becoming God. It's God becoming man. Totally different operation. But the thing to do is to remember, this is how it's perceived by non-Christians. The gospel is impossible to communicate apart from the Holy Spirit opening hearts. And all the arguments you want to, and that's not to say we shouldn't have an argument, because 
obviously, if we sloppy in the presentation of the gospel, we're, we're projecting a false image of the gospel, too. Because by having a sloppy approach, uh, that casts aspersions on the, on the truthfulness and the validity of the gospel. So we don't want to be idiots when we witness. Um, but I want to continue tonight. There's two sections on this tape. I'm going to try to locate them and get the mic close to the tape, and hopefully you can hear it. The first section is Rabbi Landis. And prior to this point in the discussion, uh, Dr. Bonson, who represents the Christian position, has argued that it's the Christian position that Jesus Christ's atonement is necessary in order to come to know God. That you can't know a holy God apart from the cross of Christ. It gets back to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, at this point now, the rabbi and the uh, Islamic professor are responding to this. And I want you to hear their reply. Just so you understand why in this framework series on Thursday nights, I go to all this labor of showing both sides. Showing you the Christian approach, showing you how it fits the system, and showing you the non-Christian and where they're coming from. Uh, this is not, you know, something for the classroom. I mean, here you've got representatives of two of the largest religions in the world, and listen to their approach. Now, this is the rabbi, and he's trying to respond now to what has happened previously in the debate. And he's getting to the point in the discussion about the law. Obviously, prior to this, uh, Dr. Bonson has pointed out that no man can keep the law. That the lesson of the law is that we're sinners. By the knowledge, uh, by the knowledge of the law is sin. Or by the, law, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And law has that. That's what the whole idea of the Torah was about. Well, the rabbi doesn't like that. So now he's got to come up with the Judaistic view of their own Torah. Okay? So this is how they approach the law. Now, what I want you to do as you listen to this is think through what we've done in previous Thursday nights when we've linked the death of Christ with what? Justice and holiness. Of whom? Of God. So what have we then said? We've said that if you compromise the atonement, what in effect are you doing to the attribute of God? You're having to, to modify the being of God himself if you're going to give up the cross. See, you can't, you can't play games here. If you distort, it's like a puzzle. You move a piece here, and you're going to move pieces all across the board. So you play games with the atonement, and think of it as an unnecessary event, and you've already compromised the holiness of God. So what, what a rabbis, what, are, what does the people of Judaism and Islam say? Okay, let's see if we can get this. that we consider them to be suspension of the truth as, as we may be categorized it doesn't mean that we believe the other ones to be inadequate which is the, perhaps the kindest term I heard but let me say the following one of the reasons why we didn't accept it and I'll say something about Christianity may also say something about Islam too um, and the first thing has to do with the law five minutes first thing has to do with the law there's a law right in front of me five minutes the first is in terms regarding a central part of the Christian message, uh, as far as I understood it today, what I've read, uh, that the law itself is inadequate. Of course the law is inadequate. Of course our moral acts are inadequate. 
I deal every day with people that come to me with problems of inadequacy. I deal with my own inadequacy. My love and how I demonstrate my love for my children and for my family is inadequate. On the other hand, it's not so bad. I accomplish something. I do something. I'd rather have them be, them be my children and I should be their father than anyone else. And it's worthy of value. And I believe that God considers it a value. And I get up every day trying to figure out how can I make it better from the day before. And I'm not so frightened of the Lord that I have to say, ah, my moral deeds are so inadequate. And in fact, my very feeling that I have a moral deed is itself an expression of some sort of pride, of some sort of overreaching hubris that I shouldn't attempt it. No, I'm, I am propelled over and over again back into the fray because the assumption of Judaism is is that the law is important because this world's important. Because God's will can be enacted in this world, even if not perfectly. And we must be there to achieve the areas which I referred to. Let me say regarding the notion of law within Islam, which claims to be You heard what he said here was that he's not a, so afraid of the Lord that he is. In other words, it's the hope for merit. It's the hope for meritorious acceptance with God, not on the basis of a blood atonement, but on the basis of somehow God's going to just bloodlessly forgive. And let me see if I have this in the right place here. while it's fast-forwarding to the section on the, the Muslim. That's fundamental to the Gospel. And that is why uh, Paul and the Apostles uh, had a problem with Phariseeism. What was Phariseeism? The idea that I try to live my best. And this, obviously, you know from your own experience, this is not uh, limited to a Judaistic frame of reference. That lots of people believe uh, that good works are acceptable with God and that God can forgive um, apart from an atonement. Now I'm going to pick this up uh, uh, just at the, toward the end. The tape ends right here because it flops. Now let me see if I can pull, a, pull, pull off the sound here. Um, this is the Muslim fellow now. Be fulfilled in his second coming. People have to to work and strive and have faith in God. Okay, this is the part where he's talking. Uh, the point that Islam has no Messiah. Islam has a Messiah, and that is Jesus Christ. We do talk about Jesus as Messiah. But there is a very different interpretation of Messiah in Islam than it is in Christianity. 
Masih, according to Islam, is not the one who bears the sins of the people and die on the cross and will take, because nobody does that. People have to, to work and strive and have faith in God and then God will forgive them, God will bless them, God's grace will come upon them. There is no need to go through this whole uh, process of going on the cross and going through all this mechanism. That is, uh, it's the God. Okay, I don't think you could hear it any clearer. That it's not necessary to go through this long mechanism. That God just forgives on the basis of repentance alone. So, so there you have it. There are two learned proponents, one of Judaism, one of Islam. Now, you can't have it both ways. And we're the stick-outs because we're the ones that sort of protrude in the religious discussion because we dig, the, the Jews and the, and the Muslims both kind of agree on this point. And it's interesting, if you study the cults, like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, you'll find that even though they talk about the cross of Christ and they kind of use some of that atonement language, when you get more deeply into their theology, you realize that it's religion that works. So let's think about what we just heard. What is going on here is a compromise of the nature of God. Who is it that requires blood atonement? It's not man. Now, lest somebody be tempted to say that this is just a New Testament thing, that it, these Christians came along and made all this, this blood atonement thing up to try to embellish the disaster that befell the founder of Christianity, that, you know, he got executed, and so we've got to come up with a spin on the execution story, so we invent all this blood atonement thing. It sounds good. Um, where do you first encounter blood atonement in Scripture? The Gospel of Matthew? No. Back in Genesis. Right there in the garden. Later on in the discussion, somebody in the audience, when they have a question to answer the panel, one man astutely asked the rabbi, Rabbi, um, Dr. Bonson has mentioned that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that blood atonement is necessary. And I read in my Old Testament, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there were requirements for blood atonement in Israel. That there were sacrifices given in Israel. That the high priest couldn't come into the Holy of Holies without a rope around him to pull him out in case he died in there because he didn't offer sacrifice correctly. Is that true, Rabbi? The Rabbi had to admit that that was true of the old Israel. But when the Jews lost their temple, then they had a new spiritual interpretation of all that Old Testament stuff. And that was that it's a spiritual sacrifice, almost uh, Romans 12.1. That your dedication to God is a sacrifice of yourself. And that's what replaces the atonement in the Old Testament. But where's the blood? Where's the death? Well, it's a spiritual death. So, my point here is, we've spent a lot of years and months in the Thursday night class, going back over the framework, over and over and over again. The events of Scripture, the creation, the fall, the flood, the covenant, the call of Abraham, the exodus, the giving of the law at Sinai. Why? Because all of those fit together in a grand scheme. 
And if you'll see the scheme behind the scriptures, or it's not behind the scriptures, it's in the scriptures, the scheme of the scriptures as a coherent pedagogical series of lessons, century upon century, that God the teacher is teaching us about himself. If you see that, then when someone like this comes along with the idea that God can forgive apart from blood atonement, it doesn't ring true to what? All the earlier pedagogical lessons. The whole point in the Old Testament was atonement. That sets you up so what happens when you see the cross of Christ, when the Messiah shockingly doesn't bring in the kingdom, shockingly is killed by Caesar, and the whole movement looks like it's going down the tubes, and then suddenly people's hearts are illuminated to the fact that, wait a minute, he's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb the Lamb of God. Now, where are they getting this talk about the Lamb of God business? From the Old Testament. So that's why you hear me sometimes so passionate about the fact you can't go reading the New Testament and be a New Testament Christian without knowing the Old Testament. Because otherwise, what would you do with something like this if you were talking to somebody like this? What would you do with that if you didn't have the Old Testament? Here's this Jewish guy. He knows his Hebrew cold, speaks it. Uh, he's an expert in the, in, in the Old Testament. He comes along and tells you that, no, it's not a blood atonement. And if you didn't know the Old Testament, what would you do now? See? So, these are why these events, it's important to lock this whole thing together. There's only so many answers possible out there. And as you mature in your understanding of Scripture, you'll see that there are very few answers. At first, when you're new at this, it sounds like there's a thousand different views out there. And the more you study, and the more the Lord gives you insight, you really realize, no, there's only two. Salvation by works, and salvation by grace. There aren't three, four, five different ways. There's only two. And we're, st we're back to this again. And you heard, it, it, thankfully for the Muslim, this is an illustration, by the way. Remember, you've heard me say, if you want to learn atheism, go to a good one. Don't go to some half-baked, baptized heathen that you run into on a Christian college campus somewhere. But, uh, and I don't mean to insult all Christian college campuses because there's some good ones, but there are also some pretty crummy ones and pretty compromising ones that suck money away from Christian parents that think they're sending their daughters or their sons to great school and it turns out that they're learning higher criticism that's so old that the universities don't teach it anymore. Well, there's one of those within 100 miles of here. So when you want to learn atheism, go to a secular guy and learn it. Go read Nietzsche. Then you get it all out on the table. And that's what's so good. Because, and if you notice, the rabbi was kind of a positive thing, but the Muslim, because he wasn't so close to Christians, he just let it all hang out. I don't, you know, go through all that mechanism of dying. I mean, good night. We don't need that. Allah forgives you if you're repentant enough, you hope. Now, what did... What, do we, what did I add that for? What have we studied in this, in this death of Christ business about faith? That, remember, I said faith is assurance. Now, without blood atonement, if we have a grasp of our sin and God's holiness, where on earth do we get the nerve to say that we're going to stand in the presence of God? Where do we get the nerve to say that we're going to heaven after we die? if we really understand his holiness and our sin. Where do we get that nerve to say that? We get it from him, that's where. 
Why? Because he's revealed to us that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, he has taken care of the problem. And this reaches the heart of man, because at the heart of men is guilt and shame. All of our hearts. So, instead of psychologizing the gospel and making it some little Jesus feel-good thing, we don't have to do that. We have to just pierce to the basic, simple idea behind the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for sin. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of, not just some people, takes away the sin of the world. So, that's the core of the gospel message. So that's why this death of Christ is important to understand and why you as a Christian must understand that you stand out as an oddball. You are part of a lonely group of people on this planet. We are surrounded by millions who reject completely the idea of someone dying for their sins vicariously. We are surrounded by millions of people, some ignorant, some brilliant, some educated, some not. From the man in the street to the man in the college classroom, who insist that if there is a God, he will accept me because I've been a good little boy or a good little girl. And he's just got to do that because that's the fair thing to do. Now, what is going on here? You talk about manufactured theology. That's manufactured theology. Where do you get that from? You talk to God and find out? Call him up on his cell phone and ask him. Have we had any revelation recently? Has changed? Not at all. We have go back to the revelation of the Bible. And it's the Jewish revelation here. Going back to Abraham was supposed to be the father of Islam. And what did Abraham have to do? He almost killed his son offering a sacrifice. This is the father of Islam. So, just to see, the gospel is controversial. And no matter how, we, we can't ever sugarcoat it enough to make it palatable to unbelief. That's the lesson I've had to learn time and time again. No matter how positive you come across, there's always going to be the offense of the gospel. There's no way around it. Because as long as unbelief says that God is like that and he can forgive me on my great repentance, the merit of my repentance, then I don't need the cross of Christ. And then there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Christ. So that's the center of the death of Christ. Now tonight we're going to go in and look at the resurrection. So if you turn to your notes on page 100... We're going to start um, looking at some of the, of the text. But before we get to the text, I want to go through some of these quotes. This is the fourth event in the life of Christ. There's actually five. Next year we'll deal with the fifth one, which is his ascension and Pentecost. But tonight we're opening up with the resurrection. And if you look at the first subtitle the historical incident of the resurrection. Page 100. You'll see that no other religious leader or founder... And think about this. We just got through saying Christianity and the gospel is an odd thing in that we believe that God is so holy that we can't self-atone. 
that we do not possess the meritorious assets to commend ourselves to a holy God. That we have to borrow those assets from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are alone here. Judaism, Islam, and the pagans all reject that tenet of our faith. So just be prepared. Now we come to another one. No other religious leader or founder ever claimed to rise from the dead in an utterly new body. Moses' body was buried and did not rise. Buddha died as any other man, and so did Muhammad. As Wilbur Smith said, all the millions and millions of Jews, Buddhists, and Mohammedans agree that their founders have never come up out of the dust of the earth in resurrection. So, now here again, we're at another unique thing. So, you, you want to master the things that set you apart in your faith from the world around you. And understand that these are non-negotiables. These cannot be compromised away. They cannot be explained away. This is where the gospel must confront unbelief. Now, I've, uh, there's two subtitles in this section. One is the affirmation of the fact of the resurrection. And if you flip over to page 102, you'll see affirmation of the significance of the resurrection. Now, what I'm trying to do here uh, is try to lead us in our thinking about what is going on over this resurrection claim. So that if you do get involved in a discussion over the resurrection, you'll protect your flanks over a little maneuver that's possible. So I'm, I'm going to cover that flanking protection as we get into the second one. The first one that we're talking about on page 100 is just the fact of the resurrection, the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what that claim is. It has always been present from the earliest days of the Christian uh, church. Now, on page 101, I'm going to give you a quote from a liberal theologian so you understand how educated, apparent Christians, because this man was a professor and, quote, Christian thinker, end quote, just want, I want to keep, keep, get sharp here, just because somebody's a Christian clergyman doesn't mean anything. They can use the buzzwords just like you can, just like I can, and mean something totally different. There's churches right around this county that I can take you in and I guarantee you can listen to the person preaching and you will think you're hearing the gospel. And I can show you, if you listen to enough of the tapes, they don't believe it at all. Not at all. And it's very deceitful. And so I want to show you how the deceitfulness works. Here is Reinhold Niebuhr. And uh, Richard Niebuhr. Reinhold was his brother. Both these guys wrote in the 40s and 50s. Uh, your parents might have, uh, those of you younger, uh, your parents might have um, some of these guys' books. Uh, if they went to college in the 30s and 40s, um, they might have taken a course on comparative religions and, and read either Reinhold or Richard. The intense analysis of the New Testament produced by the great age of historical investigation has emphasized, among other things, the fact that this belief in Jesus as the risen Lord informs 
every part of the church's, early church's thought, circle the word early, the early church's thought. So here is a scholar who is a liberal who admits that all the records from the New Testament and the early church fathers bear witness to the fact that they believed in the resurrection, physical resurrection. But, but, but the rise of historical criticism has also made it increasingly difficult for theologians and biblical scholars to accept the New Testament order of thought. What does he mean by that? Let's, let's, let's unpack that sentence. This is a very common assertion. So, let's, let's talk about it. You gotta, you'll get this in Time Magazine, you'll get this in the newspapers, you'll get it on talk shows, you'll get it on interviews. It's a common sentence. The rise of historical criticism has made it increasingly difficult for theologians and Bible, biblical scholars to accept the New Testament order of thought. So let's start with the New Testament order of thought. What do we mean by the New Testament order of thought? Well, what we mean is the biblical framework. Did the Apostle Paul and Jesus believe in sin as defined by a Mosaic law code? Did they believe in the necessity of blood atonement? Did they believe that there was a sovereign God who controlled history? Did they believe that God's Word formed history? Yes, that's what he means. The New Testament order of thought. The whole biblical framework. These guys know this. See, what I'm teaching you on Thursday nights is not something I invented. All I'm saying is that this is well known. The New Testament order of thought. But, he said, the rise of historical criticism has made it increasingly difficult to accept. So let's go to the verb. Going to accept the New Testament order of thought. Well, what does that mean? Accept it is true. Believe it. Now, why is it difficult to believe the New Testament order of thought, he says? Because of the rise of historical criticism. So let's take this one step back. The rise of Historical criticism. What's historical criticism? Historical criticism shows up in the Christian discussions here as the belief that we can't prima facie accept the text. That we have to, on an empirical, historical basis, ground in other words, instead of standing on the authority of Scripture and interpreting archaeology, um, manuscript evidence, uh, geology, biology, and all, all the rest of it, on the authority of Scripture, instead of doing it this way, I go over and I step on another platform and I say, on the basis of empiricism and rationalism, I construct my platform. And then after this grand construction job is finished, then I bring over the Bible. And then I bring the Bible over here and I begin to dissect it. This fits, this doesn't. This fits, this doesn't. 
thee. So they're like, he loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. We go through the cafeteria and we pick the things that are fitting to our appetite and reject the ones that don't. So that's what we're talking about here. What he means by the rise of historical criticism is the complete grounding of scholarship on the unbelieving basis. That's what he means. And after that grand act, then we find, lo and behold, it's difficult to accept the Bible. No kidding. And this is why people, you've heard me again on Thursday nights, and I know because I heard the criticism, that people say, well, why do you get into this? And why do you get into that? And why do you deal with the, this? This is why. Because as long as we permit biology, archaeology, history, science, physics, um, whatever, all the other things, psychology, we, as long as all these things are grounded first on the position of unbelief, and we let that happen, never can we ever, after that, reconcile Scripture. You set in motion something that comes and blows up in your face. So, yeah, can we convince the world of these things? No. But at least, when we think of these things, we always must say, what set the Scripture? Because if we don't ask what set the Scripture, then we've imported a Trojan horse. And the soldiers are going to come out of the Trojan horse at night and take the city. That's what's going on here. And that's what historically happened. This man is speaking as one of the leading scholarly authorities of the Christian faith in the 20th century. There's only about five or six guys of this stature. And guess who they've influenced and educated? The guys that have gotten their PhDs in theology. The men who populate the seminaries. The men who teach the preachers. This is what's happened, people. We've lost it because of this. So, the rise of historical criticism has made it increasingly difficult for theologians and biblical scholars to accept the New Testament order of thought. And before we leave that sentence, I just want to make one concluding remark that that's why when we attack and run our counterattack, run our counterplay, we don't snip at symptoms. We go for the foundation. And get back to that, remember the illustration? Somebody wants a redecorating job, and the redecorator shows up with a bulldozer. Could take the whole house down. We rebuild a house, that's how we deal with it. And that's, our, that's what has to happen. Because if you don't, you're not going to fight this. They have felt obligated to remove the resurrection of Jesus from its central position and place it on the periphery of Christian teaching and proclamation because the primitive resurrection faith conflicts disastrously with modern canons of historicity. What does he mean by a canon of historicity? Let's, let's take that term a minute. What is a canon of historicity? A canon here is used in the sense of a law or a principle. What is historicity? That it was historically real. So what he's saying is that the principles of interpreting history militate against accepting any kind of a resurrection. Why? Because on an empirical basis, how many resurrections have you observed? 
How many resurrections have anybody observed in Western society? When did anybody ever take a camera? When has anybody ever recorded anything like this before? This is a unique claim. Never happened before. Yeah, no kidding. That's the point. But once you say you want to go over that platform and you've got to build it on empiricism, what then must be the means? It must be the averages. It must be the, the bulk data. And if you've accepted that as your methodology, well then, of course, the canon of historicity you're using militates against accepting the resurrection from get-go. You've excluded it from the get-go. So, don't then try to be intimidated. Don't be intimidated when somebody says, well, the canon of historicity doesn't accept that. I mean, no thinking person accepts that. And you have to correct them at that point. No thinking person that operates on a pagan basis accepts that. Oh, well, what do you mean by that? Now, you call, you call me names now. No, I'm just labeling things for what they are. You start out with a naturalistic presupposition, and that's paganism. And you're saying that you're, you're a smart person. I, I believe that. But you're rationally consistent. But you're rationally consistent with a pagan premise. Since I don't accept the pagan premise, I don't have a problem with the resurrection. You have the problem with the resurrection. But it's not because it's irrational. It's because it's inconsistent with your starting point. That's why you got the problem. So don't, don't get pushed into a corner here. Use it to come back to the other person. They've got to build a position. Go for it. And you don't have to be nasty about it. You can be very gracious. Just keep asking questions. Well, what do you believe about this then? So that's, that's an important thing. Okay, now... The next paragraph, and we'll finally get into some scripture here in a minute, but I, well, I want to show you what unbelief is doing here. So when we get to the text of scripture, we're looking for things in the text now that are going to help us. And this is a little exercise and just kind of a hint sometimes. It's helped me a lot over the years that I've never been afraid to go to the scriptures to find answers. And I've, I've learned and I've had enough confidence, God has encouraged me enough in the scriptures that no matter who I run into, no matter what the argument is, I have the courage to sit there and listen to it and try to understand it. Because you know what? If I understand what they're saying and it raises questions in my mind, I know where the answers are. And so I come back to the scriptures and oftentimes it's a blessing because it causes me to go to the text more seriously than I ever did before to find the answer to this point and to ask God to illuminate that portion of the Scripture. And then you grow. Most of us grow by get kicking, kicking the ass. That's how God the Holy Spirit works. That's how He's worked in the church. He didn't, doesn't work in the church by you know, blessing the sheep and so on, because we, we, you know, we, we fight them all the time. So, He brings in the wolves. And they bite us, you know where. And then finally... We, we come to the Savior and we say, gee, maybe, maybe, he, he, you know, maybe he knows right. So, so, facing these assaults actually inspire deeper scripture, deeper appreciation of scripture. All such attempts to remove the resurrection of Jesus from its central position, I re-quoted Niebuhr here in this statement. I mean, this is a cute one. Reverse the true cause-effect of the church's origin. These unbelieving attempts to try to make the church the originator of the primitive resurrection faith instead of making the resurrection the originating cause of the church. Let me diagram this for you. 
Every college campus I know today, outside of a few Orthodox Christian ones, are teaching this. Every newspaper writer who's ever studied in these classes thinks this way. The deal is that you have the church as a group of human beings and they put a spin on history. And the spin is the New Testament. So that the New Testament text reflects not what happened, but it reflects the spin the Christians put on it. So the reports of the resurrection are things that the Christians thought about what happened in their lives, and it was such a momentous thing to meet this Jewish carpenter who was executed, that it was like living all over again, like having a new life, sort of like Shirley MacLaine. And so, except they offered it free and she charges money. The New Testament is a result of a church experience of some sort. Whereas what we believe is that you have the factual revelation of God. This is, this is his story, history. And out of that, because of the resurrection, you have the church empowered to write the New Testament. That's the sequence of events. And they're exactly opposite. So remember, which came first? The revelation of God or the religious experience? These guys are saying the religious experience came first, then came the text. And there never was a factual experience. We believe there was a factual experience that inspired the church and it wrote about it in the New Testament. Okay. Now, let's go to some of the key texts of Scripture. Let's go to the classic one, 1 Corinthians 15. First, we'll do this, and then we'll touch on a number of other, some other passages. First Corinthians 15, verse 3. Now, this is Paul, who got this, this message after Christ rose from the dead. He wasn't around. The, the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. So either Paul got the doctrine of the resurrection indirectly through the apostles or on the Damascus Road, of course, when he saw the Lord. But let's think about this in the light of modern man who argues that this is a spin. This is a spin story. Now, if it's a spin story, watch what happens here in the 1 Corinthians 15 text. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you, first of importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. What scriptures? What are the scriptures here? New Testament or Old? Old Testament. Ah. So in what models, what paradigms, what categories of thinking is Paul approaching the whole thing in? Old Testament. You who Rabbi Landis... See? He says, according to the Scriptures. We're not making this up. Check the Scriptures. We will later and next week, too, the Scriptures. It's quite a challenge to see the resurrection in the Old Testament, by the way. 
And it's going to lead us to a very interesting view of Scripture that the Lord Jesus had. I delivered unto you that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures. Of course, here he's talking about the death of Christ. And that's clear in the Old Testament Scriptures. But the resurrection is also there. And that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, you know what's interesting in the Old Testament? Why do you suppose it says there's going to be a resurrection on the third day? Now, if you've got a study Bible there, you can cheat and look at the key. But it's an interesting passage, and it's in Hosea. And it involves quite a thoughtful reflection on, on the prophets and what they said. Okay. Let's... Uh, Let's go on and, and read, follow Paul. And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, if Paul said that, what challenge do you think is embedded in verse 6 to his audience? If they doubted Paul and he said something like that, what is he daring them to do? Go talk to him. They're still around. Check it out. Did I make up the story? So it's an interesting appeal using evidence. Go check it out for yourself. He's saying they're not dead. Go talk to him. There's over 500 of these people walking around still that saw this happen. And then he appeared to James... And then to all the apostles. Now, in verse 5, 6, and 7, he's carefully witness to a sequence of appearances. So not only... It's not saying he appeared to James and the apostles and Cephas and the twelve. He says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to this person, then to that person. So not only is he claiming that these people saw Jesus, but he says, I know the sequence. Boom, 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 boom. Does this sound credible? Does it sound like a spin story? And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And I'm the least of the apostles, whom not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So now we have this, this resurrection. And he goes, he goes on and gives this whole thing, and we'll come back to this passage. Uh, by the way, that's something we want to you want to watch carefully as we go to this text. You'll hear it said by sloppy people that, oh, well, that's, you know, in the ancient world, lots of people believe in resurrections. Excuse me? You won't find a true idea of the resurrection outside of the Bible. Resuscitation is not resurrection. Okay? Everybody know the difference? Resuscitation, you come back in your present body to die again. Resurrection, your whole body disappears and is transformed. Never to die again. To different things. And this, the resurrection, is not common in the pagan world. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do you 
Some among you, by the way, that means the church. That's not the people outside the church, the people inside the church. How come among you, in the church, you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead? See? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and watch the logic. He says, okay, let's start with your premise. There's no resurrection of the dead. Let's see where that one leads. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Right? You can't have a resurrection, and that's a general principle, then you can't have a specific instance. So, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus couldn't have risen. And if Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And now look what he says in verse 15. We covered this a couple of years ago when we deal with inerrancy. We are found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead aren't raised. Now this should sound the death knell to this story. Let's think about this. The church spinning up a story. What is one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not bear false witness. You know, where, you know the context of that command, by the way? Why it was used? Why a society needs that? What happens in the courtroom? When somebody is being convicted and accused of a crime, and, you, and the jury has to sit and figure it out, you've got to have truthfulness in the courtroom. Or you get false convictions. Or said another way, you can't apply ethics if you do not have an atmosphere of truth because you can't correctly identify the situation to apply the ethic to. That's why there's a false witness claim in the Ten Commandments. People always think of thou shalt not murder and so on. But the whole court system of the Old Testament was grounded on this thou shalt not bear false witness. You don't substantiate a false accusation against your neighbor. That's what he's saying. Or conversely, you don't cover up the crime of a neighbor. That's the original side of it. So, what is happening here, Paul goes back to the Ten Commandments and he says, look, if this is a spin story, I am violating the ethical commandments of Judaism. And I believe this is why God had the Jews be the custodians of the Bible. Because the Jews had centuries of experience. Jews came through history with Torah. They came through history with a sense of right and wrong. Not like the Greeks, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians, and the Hottentots, and everybody else. The Jews had a breeding ground for century after century. They knew what it meant to have integrity. It's not that they all had integrity, but at least they knew the standard of integrity. So for them to create a spin about something that God supposedly did and he didn't do it, that's bearing false witness against whom? Against God. So any liberal today who's saying the church is spinning up the story is accusing these people against their Judaic background of violating one of the Ten Commandments. So try that on your friends that I believe the Bible and errors and all. Such an inspiring book. It has to be all or nothing, folks. These guys are putting their lives on the line, and here it is. This is a classic reference. 1 Corinthians 15.15 15 is a classic verse to come to because it shows you the mentality of the apostles in the middle of the warfare of the claims of the gospel. 
They were willing to say that if this is not true, I am an imposter, I violated the Ten Commandments, I bear false witness against my God. And then, verse 16, if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why do you suppose he said that? Let's think about that one, too, by the way. Here's the resurrection. In eternity. And here's time. And here's death. Why does he say that we, of all people, are to be pitied if that part of the message is false? Why are we to be pitied? Because what's happening over here? We are not participating in all the goody things that the world offers. Frankly, at many times, we're not really enjoying ourselves because of the priorities of our faith. We're denying ourselves temporal fulfillments. And how foolish if the whole message is wrong. And more seriously, what he's also saying by implication is that this life in eternity is being shaped by what we're doing now. We're setting up what our lives are going to look like in eternity. Very sobering thought by what we're obeying and disobeying now. And then he says later on, verse 32, he comes down, he goes through this argument several times. And this is another classic. Put this one down along with verse 15. This is another classic. If from human motives I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, in other words, if I'm just spinning up a story, uh, fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus, could be uh, the crowds, it could be literal animals, whatever it is, it's the offense of the gospel and so on. What does it profit me if the dead aren't raised? Let's eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. See, the apostles weren't stupid people. I mean, so many people have this idea that these, these guys were little old men, kooky old men or something, wandering around the ancient world. They knew how to have fun. They knew what was going on all over town. Come on, these guys aren't, weren't born yesterday. And they said, look, if this isn't true, then hey, I joined the crowd. Go ahead. Draw it out. Join the crowd. You know who's to be pitied? The stupid fools who think it's false and like it. That's why I've always said, if I wasn't a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be an atheist. I certainly wouldn't be a liberal. What an idiot. I like all the good things of the Christian religion, but I know it's phony. I mean, would you accept that in any other area of your life? I like driving my crummy car. I like going to my house that's falling apart. It gives me a good feeling. I believe in this old religion that doesn't make sense. But I like it. All right, that's the importance of the historicity claims of the Gospels. And the central to that is the historicity of the Gospel. The historicity of the resurrection. Now, we want to go to two passages in Luke. Let's go to Luke 24:31, and then we're going to see Acts, and that'll be it for the night. In Luke 24, verse 31, 
This is the Emmaus Road. And what you want to notice here with this Emmaus Road incident is that Luke seems fascinated about the resurrection. Just like he seems fascinated about Mary's pregnancy. You know, of all the four gospel writers, it's Luke that interviewed those women and got all the details of the pregnancy, both of Elizabeth and Mary. Now, why is that? Who was Luke? Medical doctor. So, he, he used his natural, God had called him to be a medical doctor, so he thought, gee, you know, I, I like to investigate these kind of things. So, he, uh, he's, he reports these neat little things. In verse 31 of Luke 24, the guys are going down the road, talking to Jesus, walking, and, and they're, they're, uh, he's obviously conversing with them. And then, all of a sudden, their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, this isn't a spirit that they're seeing. This isn't something that it just it was an appearance. It was a physical person walking down the road with them. And they weren't dreaming this. But, I mean, it's pretty awesome to think that whatever power the resurrection body has, think about this, it has the ability to appear and disappear. Boy, wouldn't you have fun to appear and disappear? And evidently, this is one of the characteristics of the resurrection body. You can go through doors without opening them. I mean, I've tried to go through doors without opening too, and I wind up getting creamed. Um, but to be able to go through walls, resurrection body. It's something physical, but there's something odd about the physics. Now, let's go to John, on our way over to the second one of Luke. I want to just stop at John, because John is supposed to be the spooky gospel writer. And in spite of all that, look what he does in John 20. This is that famous section that you hear sometimes on Easter about doubting Thomas. And therefore it was evening on the first day, the first day of the week. Notice the day of the week, by the way, Sunday. When the doors were shut, disciples were the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and he stood in their midst. How did he get through? It says the doors were shut, verse 19. So he appears. And then he said, he showed him both his hands and his side to identify themselves. And then, verse 25, we've seen the Lord. Thomas said, unless I see his hands and the imprint of his nails. Notice what Thomas wanted to do. I want to put my finger into the place of the nails, and I want to put my hand into his side. You think his wounds were big enough, by the way? This shows you how big the wounds were. Put your finger right in the nail hole. I want to do that. I want to, I want to put my hand, my whole hand in his side. So... I mean, these are big, big mortal wounds that the Lord had. But Thomas says, I want to do that, and if I can't, I won't believe. So here's the empiricist. But, but Thomas has a good point here. And the Holy Spirit used Thomas to teach the rest of the church something about this resurrection body, that it was not a disembodied spirit that appeared. There's something new about Jesus. He's not a ghost. And Jesus said to Thomas, 
or after eight days, disciples inside. Again, notice what is the state of the doors. Notice they're faithfully reported in verse 26. See these little details. Gospel writers put them in here. Doors were shut, and all of a sudden he's standing there in the middle of them. And he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, and put it into my side and stop believing, stop disbelieving. Now, if you had been Thomas, and you'd sitting there, besides getting over the shock that suddenly he was here, and you didn't believe that he did these kind of things, what would you have thought when he turned to you and quoted what you had said when he wasn't around, apparently? I think that has about spooked me out as much as just seeing all of a sudden he appears in the room. Now he's telling me what I said the other day. Gee, better watch out what I say. He's always listening. Now he says, touch me. And then he challenges the rest of the church age in verse 29. Blessed are those who have, don't see me, don't have a chance to touch me, but they believe. And we're part of those that are blessed for believing. Okay, now I want to turn to one more verse, close it tonight. It's Acts 1-3. Next week, uh, if, for next week, if you'll look um, on page 102 on the notes, please look at that argument in Luke 20, 27. I've skipped that tonight because I want you to read that. It's just a small passage. And try to reason out on a piece of paper, if you can, the logic that Jesus is using. It's, a, it's tough. This is not a simple passage. Jesus is using an argument here about proving the resurrection from Exodus 3. And I, I think it's going to challenge you. Okay. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, here's Luke again, the historian. And he says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing over to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them of the various things. But you see in verse 3, of convincing proofs. Now, does this sound like these guys are putting a spin on it? They're reporting their own errors. They're reporting the fact, gee, we thought he was a spirit. A lot of us didn't believe. They're reporting to us that 500 people finally saw the guy, and he did this for 40 days. So it doesn't quite sound like a spin story. I mean, this is a spin story. It's a, it's a ripper. Okay. Next week, we'll, we'll go on on the argument of, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this resurrection in time. We thank you that this is living evidence of your power. That in a moment of time, in a split second of time, the molecules of a body were transformed utterly so that they enter from an old physics to a new physics. And that can only be happening by the intervention of the Creator. And we thank you for these reports that our faith is grounded on something that absolutely is unique to our Christian faith. That no other religious leader, no other land, and no other culture can claim to have risen from the dead like our Lord. We ask that you impress these truths upon our hearts to strengthen our faith in these times and in these days. In Christ's name, amen.